Let's do it. Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, September 30th, 2011. This week, episode 221 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. The Z-Man is off this week for Rosh Hashanah. And at the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Joining us from the IAQ Training Institute World Headquarters in Central City, Pennsylvania, will be Valerie Bender. Today's segments include, and of course, we'll have our technical director, Dr. Wow. By the way, I'm a little froggy, a little froggier than usual today. Let's go, Pitt. Nice big victory last night down at the stadium. So uh, hang in there. My voice might go, but we'll do our best. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question and interview with Mr. Queeving. Connell, forensic industrial hygienist. We will have our halftime segment. We'll bring in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and we'll round things up at that point. First, before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Our newest marquee sponsor is Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry. They do fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at netclaimsnow.com Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To uh, contact the show, of course, you can just uh, go from your show invitation to the TalkShoe website and click on the link. You can either listen live, and, of course, we can download the show later from our website, or from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com and request a quiz. Last but not least, let's make sure we thank the IAQ Training Institute and check out their website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's go to today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Okay, we had a a correct answer last week, but unfortunately I do not have that information with me. The Z-Man has it, so I'm just going to go right into this week's and we'll congratulate last week's winner on next week's show. This week's... This week's trivia question, I hope I get this pronounced right. What drug did Nagayashi, a notable Japanese organic chemist and pharmacologist, uh, synthesize in 1893? So for those of you out there that check out the 
trivia question you can answer online or you can submit your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. All right, let's get started with the introduction for today's guest. Mr. Connell is a practicing industrial hygienist for 24 years now. He currently serves as a contract industrial hygienist for the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research. He has performed over a 1,000 indoor air quality investigations of various types and quite a wide range of indoor air quality investigations in the private sector and also done some law enforcement type indoor air quality investigations or uh, indoor environmental quality, I guess, would be better. He serves on several international and federal boards, including the ASTM D22 Committee on Indoor Air Quality, the E30 Committee on Forensic Sciences, and the E50 Committee on Environmental Assessment, Risk Management, and Corrective Action. From 2008 until 2011, he was nominated by the U.S. Center for Disease Control to sit on the Industrial Hygiene Subject Matter Expert for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security on their Health, Medical, and Responder Safety Committee. He served in that role until June of 2011, at which time he was nominated and elected to full membership on the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Interagency Board, where he currently serves. Prior to entering the industrial hygiene field, Mr. Connell worked for 10 years as an analytical chemist for a variety of research and environmental laboratories, including the Colorado School of Mines Research Institute and Hazen Research. During those times, he developed a new graphite furnace atomic absorption method for the measurement of lead in whole blood using Zeeman spectral line splitting and he also developed a new ion chromatography method for speciation of cyanides. He's also a co-author of an AIHA publication on clandestine drug labs and just recently submitted a proposed standard practices guideline to the AIHA clandestine drug lab working group. He was also co-author of the Colorado Regulations on Meth Labs and served on the Colorado Citizens Committee on Regulations Part B asbestos for many years, and he had taught a lot of the asbestos classes with uh, unfortunately deceased Mr. Steve Heron. So let's welcome him with some music, and then we'll bring on Mr. Connell. Hey, thank you for that, Austin. Mr. Queeving Connell, I hope I got it right. We looked it up. It's an Irish name. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Well, thank you very much. A good choice of music. Ah, uh, great. It's it's a pleasure to have you here. And Queeving, the first thing I'd like to do is ask you, what you know, you, you use the title Forensic Industrial Hygienist. Can you explain to our listeners why you use that title and, and what a Forensic Industrial Hygienist is? Yes. Industrial hygiene is classically given as the recognition, evaluation, anticipation, and control of human stressors. Many industrial hygienists play various roles. Um, More and more of the certified industrial hygienists nowadays are certified in comprehensive practices. That wasn't always the case. It used to be, for example, you would have industrial hygienists who are only certified in space sound issues or may have only been certified in ventilation issues or certified in radiological issues. Um, most industrial hygienists today practice um, in a variety of smaller niches, uh, and, and very often the, uh, the industrial hygienist may be a corporate industrial hygienist who is managing a health and safety program, very often health and safety and environmental program, or it might be a private consultant who is, uh, for example, a, a colleague of mine uh, here in Denver. He specializes in... Um, writing, developing, and health and safety programs for a variety of smaller uh, employers who really can't afford to have their own industrial hygienists. In my particular case, the the term forensic industrial hygienist, um, it it is a descriptive term, and um, essentially a forensic industrial hygienist is somebody who develops arguments, opposed to somebody who is going to be managing a corporate a health and safety plan. Um, most of the work that we do is typically going to be in an adversarial position to the extent that 
we are brought in to look at two sides of an argument and to try to develop what, what we believe is the most objective argument based on the facts that are presented. So we do get involved in some cases with regard to criminal investigations. We also get involved in, um, in civil litigation issues. And also we get involved in situations where there's an employer OSHA adversarial position. And so the term forensic simply means that we develop arguments. The term was also selected from a marketing perspective to attempt to uh, give a description as to the types of services that we offer. By the way, I want you and everyone else to know that when you listen live, the the sound is not nearly as good as when you listen to the recording later, but uh, that is just something, and especially for those on the phone. Anyway, now... When when you, you mention industrial hygienists, I'm, I think I recall seeing that Colorado has a specific like, definition and statute of an industrial hygienist. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, that is accurate. Uh, back Perfect. in the late 80s, uh, if I remember correctly, maybe it was the early 90s, uh, Representative Mark Paschal had contacted me uh, because the ABIH had con- – it was the ABIH in, in conjunction – with um, the AIHA, and they had contacted his office. They wanted to develop uh, some uh, title protection legislation and define what constitutes industrial hygiene and what constitutes an industrial hygienist. So Mark Pascal asked me to be a technical advisor with regard to industrial hygiene. We had several meetings with a number of AIHA members, ABIH members, um, Aaron Tripler or Aaron Tripler, I don't remember how to pronounce his name. He visited Colorado on, on a couple of occasions. And then ultimately what we did was we were able to hammer out language that was presented as a bill to the Colorado legislature, which eventually was then signed by the governor and became codified in Colorado Revised Statutes. I know you do a lot of work with the clandestine drug lab in, you know, I don't want to call it an industry. I guess it is somewhat of an industry, but the the fact that we have numerous clandestine drug labs around the country, and you're well known for that. And in fact, I know you're actually a, a law enforcement officer, and, and you participate in some of these. Um, I, I think it's part time that you do the law enforcement part of things. And I'm really curious about this issue in that you know people have to respond to these on a regular basis. What is the key thing you teach people? about being the first responder when they are going into a clandestine drug lab situation? What we do is we prepare a threat assessment before we hit a lab. Uh, We will try to prioritize what those threats may be. At the top of the list uh, in our threat assessment, our primary concern is going to be children and potential that the bad guy may begin to take hostages. That's at the the top of, of our list. We try to make sure that when we hit a lab, we're not hitting a lab where uh, there's going to be kids there or there's going to be um, other occupants. We're, we want the bad guy. Sometimes we're forced to go in based on uh, information that's provided to us. Sometimes we're, we're forced to go in regardless of the situation. Then, then second of all, we deal with the threat assessment uh, level of the bad guy themselves. We're, you know, we're obviously worried about uh, our own safety going in. So we develop a plan to increase our um, we increase our protection by addressing um, the potential threat presented by just the bad guy himself. We then move on to issues of uh, physical hazards such as booby traps um, and uh, explosive devices, that kind of thing. We then move on to chemical hazards. Now, some people could argue that the chemical hazards would actually present a higher threat. Uh, than anything else. That, that, that is true, unfortunately, in the real world. Um, we're not able to assess the, the chemical hazards uh, necessarily at the proper level. At the proper level. And, so, and the reason being is many cases we can't even go in with PPE. We're going to go in just with our, uh, oftentimes just our regular patrol gear, and we may not have respiratory protection, we may not have skin protection, um, the net result is that it's been estimated that uh, approximately 50% of the time when first responders hit a clandestine drug operation, uh, somebody's going to come back with a chemical injury of some sort. This is a concern 
both uh, at, with the uh, Interagency Board for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security on the HMRS Committee, which I sit. It's a, it's a concern for the uh, Centers for Disease Control and NIOSH. Um, and, and yet it's something that is difficult to deal with because we have situations where many law enforcement agencies simply don't have the resources necessary to purchase the proper equipment. And then the realities of a tactical approach uh, oftentimes restricts our ability to don that protective equipment. So it's a question of prioritizing these hazards and, uh, and, and trying to um, do our best to, uh, to counter them. You know, I'm, I'm a little curious about that. I want, to, I want to follow up a little bit because, you know, the, you mentioned some of the real you know, immediate hazards, the fact that, you know, there's all kinds of basically safety issues when you're dealing with these types of situations. But then... You mentioned the chemicals and the potential for harm to the people responding to the chemicals. How, is it common that you also just have you know kids in the buildings that are also being exposed, and, and is there more of an exposure because they're actually disturbing the materials when they come in, or is it just that, you know, they, um, I guess, you know, do you, do you see the same problems within the occupants, I guess I should say? Yeah, we do, um, and uh, yes, children are often involved. Um, there, there's a national organization called Drug Endangered Children, uh, and folks who are interested in learning about uh, you know what they can do in their own community with regard to protecting children, they can visit the Drug Endangered Children website. Uh, Commander Moriarty, one of my personal heroes, she was one of the folks who uh, helped to establish uh, the DE. But with regard to the chemicals that can be present, because of the fact that these guys are um, kind of wild, mad scientist types, they don't necessarily follow a specific recipe, uh, and they are frequently trying to make their own designer drugs or add bits and pieces here or there. Uh, the net result is that we can never really fully anticipate what kind of chemicals we're going to be ex- uh, encountering in any raid. We typically anticipate that we're going to be countering um, HTL, hydrochloric acid. We're going to be countering phos- encountering phosphine, VOCs, um, and, and possibly iodine, and possibly anhydrous ammonia, depending on the methodology that's being used by the cook. We, we kind of, we, 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 we typically will, in, um, will, will anticipate at least those four. Let's, um, let's go to Valerie Bender. Val, do you have a follow-up question? Yeah, you know, I was wondering, um, what areas of the country are you having the biggest problems with the clandestine drug labs? We continue to see uh, a lot of activity in California, Arkansas, um, Missouri. I think that those are going to be our our current hotspots. Okay. And is that consistent when it comes to different types of clandestine labs? I mean, you you know, you've got grow houses, you've got the meth labs, you've got, I would assume, places, well, obviously places where people cook up uh, crack cocaine, etc. Is that pretty consistent? No, it's going to be regional, and we see large regional differences. Okay. And I, I want to go into a little bit more on the uh, the grow houses, because that's become a big issue. I know in Canada that was a big issue. And I was talking to someone from Canada last week who said he feels it's it's going to be more of an issue in the United States as well. It's already obviously somewhat of an issue, but they've got some some guidelines in Canada now for the cleanup of these grow houses where they're growing marijuana. Can you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on how that's going in the United States and if you're familiar with the Canadian guidelines for that? I'm not familiar with the Canadian guidelines, but what we're seeing is a change um, in grow ops in the United States. It used to be that when we would hit a grow op, uh, it was just kind of uh, harmless hippie types, if you'll excuse the expression. I don't mean that in a derogatory manner. But it was generally folks who just wanted to grow their pot, and they weren't dangerous people. They weren't, they weren't violent, uh, you know. They were, they were just uh, interested in growing their dope and maybe selling a little bit on the side. Typically, they weren't going to be involved in, in guns, and, and they weren't going to be involved in other kinds of drugs. 
Unfortunately, now we've seen a major shift away from that. What we're finding is that the folks who are already involved in other hard drugs uh, will be those who are growing the marijuana. Therefore, they're, they're, they're part of a different criminal class. They're becoming more and more frequently violent, armed criminals, better organized. Um, it used to be that if we would hit a grow up, we typically wouldn't find any other kinds of contamination. Now we're finding that if we hit a grow up, we're finding meth, we're finding coke, we're finding a lot of other things. Um, and, and so because of this changing industry, if you will, this clandestine industry of, of grow operations, uh, it's very lucrative. And um, so it's bringing in a different class of criminals. Interesting. And I would assume with with the grow ops, you, you've got a lot of people, you know. Oh, oh I know what that is. That's back at the, <laughs> that's back at the home office. We're going to mute that for a moment. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's my, my watchdog keeping an eye out for the grow up. Uh, anyway, uh, what I'd like to mention is that I I was I looked at your Facebook page and it looks like when there are grow ops obviously they modify the home in a lot of ways you know and I, I would assume as as well with meth labs but when you're in a grow op you've got to modify it pretty significantly you're using a big portion of the house a lot of times they're putting up plastic they're you know adding CO2 and they're putting in these grow lights and things like that. Do you run into problems with uh, structural issues? Do they cause dampness problems in the homes? Uh, is that a, a concern for you at all? Yeah, that's uh, as, from an industrial hygiene perspective, that's going to be the biggest issue with the grow ops. Uh, and let's, let's assume that it's uh, just a grow op and, and that there are no other controlled substances involved. Um, the biggest issue with grow ops is going to be the structural damage, the damp that is uh, introduced, um, and then when the grow off is taking place, they're going to be producing large amounts of CO2, large amounts of CO, and large amounts of ultrafine particles. So what we find is that um, when, when a grow off is pulled out of a structure, the biggest issue typically is going to be an offensive odor and structural damage. We don't typically see residual contamination that presents a health hazard um, with their grow ops in the same way that we see that with the uh, P2P labs or some of the pseudoephedrine reduction labs where we can see residual contamination that lasts for years if it's not properly addressed. Okay. And let's let's go a little bit into just, well, you know, I had one other question on this I wanted to make sure I talked about. Cliff, uh, before he left for his uh, couple days off here, he mentioned that, and I didn't see it somewhere on the, on the website, there was a discussion of flawed drug lab reports. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit and why, uh, what kind of concern that is for you. Well, the, in the state of Colorado, we have regulations. The regulations are very clear on what has to be performed prior to cleanup, what has to be performed during cleanup, and then what has to be performed after cleanup. Um, and and these were these regulations were developed by stakeholders committees for in particular for stakeholders committees. These committees comprised of attorneys, firefighters, law enforcement, industrial hygienists, landlords organizations, apartment organizations, private citizens, remediation contractors. A very wide and diverse population uh, wrote these regulations, and therefore, when the final regulations were were adopted. They incorporated a number of philosophies and a number of concerns. Uh, they reflected a very good mix of how to address the problem. And, and the idea behind the regulations was to not only level the playing field, but to ensure that when a property is encountered, by the end of the process, that the property is going to be safe. Um, and, and so when somebody goes in and they say, well, heck with the regulations i'm not i'm going to ignore the regulations and i'm just going to do this and this and this because i think that's a good idea but i'm going to falsify the report and i'm going to say that i followed the regulations well clearly that just creates problems for everyone we've got several cases that we're working on at the moment where um, tenants and or home buyers have purchased a property or moved into a property that they were told was compliant with state regulations 
only to later find out that the property had never been cleared properly. Contaminations were still are still extremely high, and um, in, in one case, the, the last the one that we've got working on at the moment, uh, the concentrations that we found inside the home, I think were 128,000 times over the lawful limit. I'd have to go back and check that, but they were screaming high. Um, and so what? then that person turns around and they go, well, wait a minute, I've just purchased this house, and now I can't move into it. I can't live in it, and, uh, you know, I'm a victim of a crime, essentially. And, and that's a good point. They are. And, and so what we do is we're often asked to perform a, what's called a critical review uh, or a compliance audit. Somebody will hand us a consultant's report and say, does this comply with state regulations? All we do is we just go through each element of the state regulation that needed to be covered, and then we ask the question, did this uh, consultant cover that element of regulation? It becomes a yes or no question. Okay. Well, I appreciate your your, uh, experience on that. Let's move to the next category here we had on our list of, of discussion points, and that's IAQ investigations and mold investigations, and we can kind of combine them or separate them out a little bit. But first, I want to ask, what, what type of background do you feel is essential for people that are actually performing these kind of investigations, particularly the IAQ investigations? Um, well, it's a mixed bag because each type of assessment is going to bring a different skill set. If, for example, we're talking about somebody doing a mold investigation, a home inspector uh, is perfectly adequate. Somebody who's a good home inspector, they can do... A, a fine mold assessment. Uh, maintenance personnel, they can do a, a very good mold assessment. Uh, just general, even janitorial personnel in a, in a school or, or in, a, in a commercial building, they, have it, they already possess the knowledge necessary to do a good mold assessment. Uh, then if we were asking the question about indoor air quality issues, um, then it, it becomes a slightly different kettle of fish to the extent that it brings a, a different skill set. Somebody who's being brought in to perform an indoor air quality assessment has to have a broad range of knowledge. And more than anything else, I think they have to have an ability to properly define a question. And and what I mean by that is that so often what we find is that the indoor air quality complaint as it comes in has nothing to do with indoor air quality whatsoever. Uh, And to to give a a really good example, a colleague of mine, a wonderful fellow by the name of Steve Sadler, uh, he had an indoor air quality complaint that he was responding to, and uh, he he responded to it. And to begin with, what he did was he just simply sat within the area, the study area, to observe what was going on and, and to observe the work environment. Um, he began to realize that it was an ergonomic issue that the particular area, it comprised primarily of people who spent their entire day sitting at computers, and he noticed that their posture was very bad. He looked into why was their posture bad. Their posture was bad because they had inappropriate eyeglasses. They almost all wore eyeglasses. And that they were straining, they were stooping over and straining. He corrected his indoor air quality problem by uh, uh, developing a program to have appropriate eyewear, trifocals, uh, fitted for each of the employees to improve their posture. When he did that, the indoor air quality problem went away. And so the ability to define the question, what we see too often nowadays is we see consultants who run around and they collect nonsensical samples with no data quality objectives and no question in mind, but they just go out and start collecting air samples. And to perform an indoor air quality, we need to remember that it may not be an indoor air quality but it certainly would be an indoor environmental quality issue that may take into account ergonomics, lighting, uh, heat loads, uh, employee-employer relationships, sound issues. There can be a, a number of factors that have nothing to do with the air, but that may adversely impact indoor environmental quality. Okay. What, let's, Val, do you want to add anything there? That kind of helps me with the people doing the um, IAQ investigations. I was also wondering, what type of background do you feel is needed uh, for people performing the indoor environmental contracting, uh, such as mold remediation, water damage, and fire? 
Well, that moves into the remediation issue, and um, I think that uh, that for the most part, where you have somebody who's doing fire and water damage, they certainly don't need an industrial hygienist. They don't need any kind of an indoor environmental quality person. I think that fire and water damage can be adequately performed by uh, the construction trades and people that have expertise in that. I've been an expert witness on a couple of fire uh, cases, and, um, you know, essentially essentially my, my argument was that you don't need me, uh, that, you know, this is not an industrial hygiene issue. Um, so the, the remediation trades, I think, are, are separate from the industrial hygiene investigations. What I'd like to do is we're on our halftime segment here. I'd like to thank our sponsors before we come back. So we're going to mute everybody here, and we'll be right back with our guest, Mr. Queeving Connell, a forensic industrial hygienist here on IAQ Radio, and we're going to continue our discussion of indoor environmental quality investigations when we come back. Association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure. And, of course, our, our newest marquee sponsor, Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more at netclaimsnow.com. And, of course, please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. Let's bring uh, Dr. Wow in here for a moment. Okay, we're going to have to keep the volume down because he'll come in loud here. Dr. Dietrich Wow, hello, Dieter. Hello, Joe. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Okay. Good. Any comments or questions from the first half? A couple of interesting uh, points. And, um, yeah, by and large, I, I, I think uh, just looking at a indoor air or indoor environmental problem, uh, I can do that with a heck of a lot of common sense. I just did one where one guy out of about in an, in an apartment, uh, in an apartment, in an office building, out of about 250, complained like crazy. Oh, whenever I come in here and what have you, and um, yeah, somebody got to come in here and assess the whole problem that we are having over here. Now, there is one guy out of 250 who complains about something. I talked to him. <laughs> I was in that building. He was in that building. And he moved away from his desk to another desk, which was about 10 feet away. Yeah, 250 people. It's a huge place. 
I did take air samples. I didn't really think I needed them. There were, and he said, you know, I, 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 we have to check for VOCs and for mold spores. And I said, well, we can do that. And my employer told me, yeah, go ahead. Uh, if that is what we need to you know, defend ourselves, we have to go in there. Uh, I, I told my client, I said, I know you, I, I can tell you right now what the results are before I take them. And I was absolutely right. They were stupid. I mean, not stupid. They were uh, results that uh, yeah, I anticipated minimal of this and minimal of that and below um, uh, the sensitivity of some very sophisticated instruments like a GC mass spec. They always find something in the parts per trillion, which doesn't bother me. Um, <clears throat> the other thing um, uh, that that kind of is interesting uh, uh, to me, and I didn't know for the longest time that these meth labs. I thought I thought there were a handful in the whole country, and I saw. I think during one of the meetings, somebody gave the presentation and I saw nothing but red dots all over the United States map. Uh, to me, that is, well, I guess it is an industry. You said that correctly, Joe, right? <laughs> yeah, and I kind of slipped an there, but it is an industry of some sorts. <laughs> tell you one thing. I mean, I couldn't believe the volume and the number of these places. I mean, that's an epidemic. It's unbelievable. And um, I'm I'm. I'm Price, um that there are that many, and if there are that many, there must be that many customers. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, they wouldn't do it. That's very simple. Unfortunately, that's true. Queeving, any any follow up on what Doctor Wild just said? No, I, I think that uh, the story that he gave is uh, very typical uh, with regard to his experience on going in and, and resolving an indoor air quality issue without collecting any samples. We find that uh, about. Um, about 75% of the time we can resolve the indoor, if it's a legitimate indoor air quality issue, we can actually resolve it without having collected any samples. For example, we can, when we look at a, we, we perform a visual inspection of the property, go up onto the roof and, and you find out that an air exhaust from one building is only one meter away from the air intake from another building. You say, well, oh, no, that never ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to follow up a little on the mold issue because I know I you know I follow some of these chat rooms out there and I see some of the back and forth and I, I just want to get your your thoughts. Are you saying that you never need to sample on a mold project or are there times when you feel it is appropriate? Um, we find that there are certainly sometimes when it's appropriate. Uh, we've um, I've done about six hundred mold assessments in three of those that I can think of. Um, we did have to resort to sampling because we were not able to otherwise determine what was going on. And so, you know, three times out of about 600 kind of gives the the ratio that, that we've seen it. Um, otherwise, no, we just uh, we really don't see that there's much of a need to do sampling unless it's either an academic pursuit where you're saying, um, I don't really need this for my decision-making process, but... I've got I've got some money to play with, and I would really like to increase my knowledge base. So I'm going to perform sampling, or in some cases, it's litigation, uh, wherein we will perform sampling uh, pursuant to a priori data quality objectives that are very very tight, and uh, we will perform sampling that will be absolutely defensible in court, uh, even though, as uh, Dr. Dietrich just pointed out. We can predict what those results are well before we take the samples. Let me let me follow up on that a little bit too. Are you? I mean, 
this kind of gets into the expert witness thing that we wanted to talk about anyway. We're talking a little bit about IAQ investigations. And and I know in doing the research for the show, you've, you've done expert witness testimony for both plaintiffs and defendants. I don't know what the percentage is. Maybe you can let us know that. But I think a lot of people have the impression that you just do defense work uh, and that you don't work with plaintiffs. And I think the other impression is that you don't feel there are health effects with respect to exposure in damp buildings and molds. Can you comment on those two topics for us? Yeah, we'll start with the proportion. I, I typically am about 50-50 plaintiff to defense, number one. Uh, number two is um, fungi in general have a huge impact on human health, both uh, adverse as well as beneficial. Um, I have never, ever in, in, in writing or in verbiage ever said that there were no health effects from molds and no health effects from damp buildings. That has never been my opinion. That is not my opinion as I sit here and speak to you. The fungi, uh, there are very important, um, they are a very important aspect of human health. The fungi can be responsible for both uh, superficial mycoses, invasive mycoses, systemic mycoses. They can be important uh, in a number of ways. And this becomes a question of degrees. And it becomes a question of exposure for the most part. So, for example, when Dr. Dietrich just a few moments ago said, if we go out and we look at a GCMS and, and we take a GCMS sample from, say, a charcoal tube, and then we run that GCMS, and we come back with part per trillion and part per billion concentrations of VOCs. Well, let's say it's benzene, and, and it comes back at three, three parts per trillion of benzene. Well, we know that benzene is a carcinogen, soft tissue carcinomas, and things like this, and we can say, fine. So does that mean that we're going to shut this building down because there's three parts per trillion or three parts per million of benzene? No. Why? Because the dose is not sufficient to rise to the level uh, of, a, um, uh, of a high risk for an, ad, uh, for an adverse physiological effect. So we, we try to put it into perspective, and we look at the toxicology, and so we say, well, we're not denying that benzene uh, causes illness. We know that benzene causes illness, but what we're arguing is that the dose received from the concentration that's present is not sufficient to result in a higher risk of, of injury. In fact, at those concentrations, it's below the what's called the low L, the lowest observable adverse effect level. And therefore, since we're below the low L or, the, or an associated term, the no L, then we simply say, look, that's background. We're going to accept that. There's no evidence to demonstrate that those concentrations of benzene can result in a human uh, adverse a adverse human response. And, and so we carry that same concept over to, for example, our, our molds, and particularly with mycotoxins. And we say, look, with regard to the mycotoxins, you've got four square inches of stachybotrysatural over here on this wall. It's not an issue from a mycotoxin perspective. It's not an issue from a mold spore exposure issue. It's an aesthetic issue. Let's go over there, find out why the water's there, find out why it was growing, wipe it off the wall, and get on with life. You don't even have to collect the sample. And I guess when you do work for a a plaintiff, let's say, let's take a mold case, because I know, again, this is something I see a lot of postings on. It's obviously very, it's it's a hot topic, let's put it that way. When you When you're doing plaintiff's work, for a mold case, can you give us an example of the type of case you've dealt with and, and what your you know, what your findings were? Sure. Far less than 1% of our work is as expert witness, so we have to put that into perspective. Um, although we perform all of our work presuming that it will go to court, and so we prepare our documentation so that it is tenable in the trier of fact, nevertheless, less than 1% of my time actually is spent as an expert witness. Um, and so in cases where we um, may be working for the plaintiff or for the defense, our results are exactly the same. We simply present the objective argument. We allow the attorneys to take our work product. Sometimes our work product, they will look at that and they'll go, oh, my gosh, you've just heard our case, and they don't want to use me. We say, okay, that's fine. Or they will take our, our, our information and our data and they will say, okay, that, that helps my case. I'm going to go ahead and use that. So our opinions and our methodologies don't change for if we're working for the plaintiff or for the defense. 
when we are brought in to perform an assessment or to do a critical review of, of other experts' work, our work product is always the same. It may be beneficial to our client. It may not be beneficial to our client. That's for them to decide. Let's, let me go into a little bit about some of the existing methods, guidelines, and standards related to these issues. I know you're in our exchange back and forth before the show, you mentioned that you, you follow ACGIH and uh, OSHA st- regulations with OSHA, with ACGIH. I guess it would be guidelines, and there are some standards out there. And let's let's take, for instance, the remediation side of things, and let's talk a little bit about mold remediation. We've got EPA, we've got OSHA, we've got IICRC, we've got ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. It kind of drives me crazy sometimes to try and figure out which one to work with or whether we should pick and choose from a bunch. Do you have any comments on, on those particular guidelines for, in, in this case, mold remediation? Yeah, I, I think that Dr. Dietrich, once again, going back to what, what Dr. Dietrich said um, at, at the break, there is so much valuable information in what he said, because if you take a look at what he said, he distilled this down quite well. And what he said was you take a common-sense approach, and, and that is absolutely the case in mold remediation. Um, let's take, for example, um, a situation where we had a... Um, uh, this was out in New Jersey. I was in New Jersey a few months ago. There were 23 buildings with a mold problem. The mold was uh, primarily because the, the structures had been partially built and then abandoned. They'd gotten to the point where they had put the drywall up into the building, but they had not yet uh, activated the heating system. These structures sat unoccupied for, I think it was three years, maybe five years. I don't recall. And um, what had happened was is because of the, the slight damp that had developed inside those buildings, we had literally hundreds of thousands of square feet of mural mold growth on the walls and the ceilings of, of this drywall. The, uh, the property owner, uh, they had a proposal from a mold remediation company who had come in. They had spent thousands of dollars on mold sampling. This was going to be a $1.5 million cleanup. We came in and we pointed out that this mural mold was just simply a superficial growth that was over the, the drywall, that all they needed to do was buy a HEPA vacuum with a soft bristle brush, go through and vacuum the walls. That was all, just vacuum the walls. And they did. They just hired, they, they, they took two of their employees, bought a HEPA vac, and they went through and they just simply vacuumed off the surfaces. And that restored those surfaces back again to an acceptable condition and uh, then they, con- they continued on with the um, uh, they continued on with the construction of the buildings and then once they had the ventilation system in and running and the heating system the mold didn't come back because the moisture issue had been corrected so when we look at common sense approaches and, and I see that um, somebody has had a water leak inside their house and they've got uh, some growth on a wall uh, you know, and they've got one square foot of stacky botrys, and the next thing is they're looking at $5,000 for a cleanup. We go to the homeowner, the property owner, and we say, well, no, let's just cut that little one square out, and let's find out why there's water behind there, and um, fix the water leak and, and patch up the drywall. We don't need moon suits, and we don't need biocides, and we don't need respirators. We just need to fix the problem. What about when we get beyond that one square foot? We get up to, you know, 30 square foot. Do you agree with, the like, the EPA guidelines for that type of remediation? Well, as I pointed out, uh, on the property that had 23 buildings on it, we had hundreds of thousands of square feet of confluent growth. And we were able to take care of that, again, without any biocides, without removing any material, without respiratory protection, without moon suits, without negative pressure controls. So it's going to be site-specific, and each case needs to be decided on its own merits. I think that that's where if you if you run into small amounts of mold, uh, you have your maintenance people look at it and correct the problem. If you're dealing with hundreds of square feet or thousands of square feet, or in our case, sometimes hundreds of thousands of square feet, then maybe additional expertise is necessary. For example, we just wrapped up one project. There were 56 housing units, and each one of the housing units had serious mold issues because of A, an architectural defect, B, a construction defect. So we needed to go through and we needed to evaluate this and determine what was the most appropriate response. Um, and so 
when we look at these guidelines, we have to remember that they're guidelines. They're, they're, like, they're like a toolbox, and a carpenter doesn't rely on just one tool. You don't see a carpenter walking around with just a hammer. A carpenter carries around a variety of different tools, and each tool is going to have its applicability for a particular situation. Much the same way, uh, these various guidelines that are out there and, and rules of thumb and whatnot, these are going to be tools which somebody can apply depending on their degree of expertise, and it, it'll be more or less appropriate depending on, you know, the questions that they're asking and, and how they try to match these things. So when we look at various guidelines, we don't necessarily say one is better than the other, one is worse than the other, but rather we look at them and, and we, we look at what is the body of science telling us, what is the, the state of art telling us, what is standard industry practice, what are the common themes that are running between these different guidelines, what are the differences, and why are those differences there? And then for those who make a full-time living off of remediation, they're going to pick and choose between those and say, well, this is most appropriate for this circumstance, but this is most appropriate for this particular case over here. And between that balance, hopefully they're going to come up and, and do a good job. But, again, going back to what Dr. Dietrich said, hopefully it's going to be a common-sense approach. Okay. We can we can come back on, on a little more on that. I've got a text or two here that I can go to uh, during the roundup. But if there was another issue I really wanted to ask you about, and that's the lead-based paint issue. I know you, I don't know how much you've done with lead-based paint, but I know you helped develop a uh, process for determining the level of lead in blood. Is that is that correct? That is correct. And the lead-based paint issue, and specifically the latest EPA guideline, I, I'm very happy to see that lead is lead is particularly insidious for a number of reasons, not least of which is because the environmental state is such that it's very persistent in the environment in a what's called a bioavailable state. Not all lead is bioavailable, but where we see that it is in homes and buildings, uh, it does need to be addressed correctly because um, lead in general is incompatible with most physiological systems, biological physiological systems. It is, it is a, a significant uh, environmental hazardous material that needs to be addressed. And are you familiar with the trend on blood lead in workers since the OSHA regulation came out on lead in construction? Has there been any improvement or maybe you're not aware of that. I, I just thought I'd throw it out there and see if you had any comment. Yeah, there has been a great improvement uh, across the country. We are seeing a steady decline in whole blood lead levels, in part because of both the, 19, the uh, 29 CFR 1910 and 29 CFR 1926 rules, as well as some of the rules that have come out through the U.S. EPA. And I'm also happy to say because of internal controls that uh, – both remediators and employers have employed. So when we look at some of the surveys out there, such as the NHANES survey, which is, I don't know what it stands for, it's the National uh, Health and Nutrition something survey, I don't recall what the initial stand for. Um, what we see is a steady decline in whole blood lead over the course of time, and we see that occurring over a broad demographic range as well. So these are successful programs that are slowly bringing down the, uh, the whole blood lead and and that's that's good and and therefore we see the proof in the pudding. Another quick one before we go to roundup: uh, asbestos abatement. Asbestos abatement is a big issue for many building owners. Do you think maybe we've overkilled asbestos abatement? Similar to your thoughts on mold remediation, I, I kind of got that impression from you. Anyway, you didn't directly, I don't think, say we've overkilled it, but I, I'm pretty sure you feel that way. Anyway, no, I don't feel that way at all. Oh, good. I think that that's quite appropriate. Um, th by the way, it's important to note that there's a lot of people who have impugned opinions to me that I have never held. And, in fact, I've seen articles on the Internet supposedly written by me that I never wrote. No, we have not overkilled the, in my opinion, we have not overkilled the asbestos issue. I, don't al I, I also believe that the control measures are appropriate that, that are currently being employed. Um, we have to also remember, however, that the, when we look at knee shafts and, and we look at 40 CFR, and we look at, at, at uh, the AHERA regulations, and even the, the, uh, the um, ASHA regulations that came in before that, um, that we did not necessarily need to go in and, and do removal in all circumstances, but rather in situ management, 
uh, still remains a viable way of taking care of things until ultimately the asbestos is removed. But to I, I have never stated that that the asbestos issue was overkill. I don't believe that in any respect. Uh, I believe that the way that it, that asbestos is being abated and managed uh, is is quite appropriate. Okay, let's let's go to a roundup. We'll go around and ask one final question. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Let's go around. Let's start with uh, Valerie Bender. Val, I, I, do you have anything you'd like to add or a final question? Yeah. Um, Mr. Connell, I was wondering, what do you feel is the next big issue or even the current issue that is currently being overlooked in the IAQ uh, industry? What we see is a dynamic situation that's developing because of the, the changes in building materials and the changes in construction techniques. So, for example, we, we, I'm seeing a lot more polyurethane foam issues, ultrafine particle issues that are developing. And, and I think that as building materials change and construction techniques change, we'll just simply see different issues arising as time goes on. You know, that's something I'm glad you mentioned, actually. I'm, I'm glad. Thanks for the question, Val. The that's something I'm hearing more and more about, and I, I couldn't agree more. I get quite a few calls here recently, and I think uh, you're dead on. That could be a big one in the future. will be a, a big issue in the future. Let me do a quick uh, text message I've got here. Actually, it's a, an email we got, and it, it goes back to the mold thing, obviously. I, I just like I like to give people the opportunity to correct any you know, misinformation they feel is out there. And also to, you know, if you have a different opinion from others, that's great. But uh, we've got a, a listener that was reading your website and it says something about, you know, there's a misconception that when water damage occurs and mold is fine, it's imperative to remove the mold. And then goes on to basically say that um, otherwise there's no compelling reason to do any remediation beyond correcting the water damage, etc. And then they ask, is that, isn't that contradictory to, like, public health policy where a lot of federal guidelines say we should remove the mold to protect occupant safety, or would you disagree that that's not what the public health guidelines are? Uh, that is correct. That is not what the public health guidelines are. If you take a look at AIHA and you take a look at World Health Organization, um, if you take a look at uh, ACGIH, if you take a look at the Centers for Disease Control, at NIOSH, um, take a look at quote after quote after quote, nobody in there is saying that necessarily that you do have to remove it. In fact, USDPA in 2001 said that it is impossible to eliminate all mold. If you go to AIHA, uh, if you go to the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization 2009 said that the main challenge of field investigations is to, is to decide which contaminated materials should be removed and which ones can be left in place. Just because you've got mold present doesn't necessarily mean that you have to remove it. In fact, uh, a, a project I wrapped up in Wyoming here just recently was uh, that buildings were built in the late 1980s. Uh, floor, floor decking was put in. The floor decking had mold already on it. And now if you go down into the crawl space and you look up at the floor decking, you can see that, that it's colonized with mold. The mold was on that building material when it was put in place in the 80s. And it's never grown. It's just simply there. Big deal. Get on with life. There's no need to go in and remove it. It's not going to pose a health hazard. And so when people say, well, federal guidelines say you have to remove it, I always answer with, really, show me. Show me that guideline. And nobody is ever able to produce those. And then I turn around and say, well, here's what the U.S. EPA says. Here's what World Health Organization says. Here's what CDC says. And it's completely contrary to what a lot of the older mediators are saying. All right. Well, we, I, and I've had people on the show with kind of both opinions. It would be nice to maybe get everybody together someday and uh, maybe hash it out on the radio. What do you think there, Cueven? I would I would love to try that. I would love to try that. But uh Kui Ving, I apologize. Let me let me also 
get Dr. Wow. By the way, we're at 1 o'clock. I did not warn you. Sometimes we go a little bit over. Do you have to run right this moment, or can we? do we have time for one more question? And then we always like to give you the last word. No, please, go ahead. Great. Dr. Wild, Dietrich? Yeah. Uh, am I on? Yes, you're on, Dietrich. <clears throat> Just stay a little back from the phone because it's kind of loud. We've got it up for... Uh, okay, I, is that better right now? Beautiful, beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Very good, and uh, I think a wonderful point was made, uh, particularly here with benzene. It can be, can be done with any other chemical. Um, and the one thing uh, uh, which is really the guiding uh, concept is the dose-response uh, concept. Uh, you know, the higher the dose, the higher the response. If you give me a choice to eat strychnine or table salt, I take the strychnine any old day because strychnine is one milligram and table salt is 40 milligram, uh, it's 40 grams. If I eat 40 grams of table salt, I'm a heck of a lot better off with one milligram of strychnine. So we have to watch this. If you're very afraid of benzene, don't go into a forest where there are pine trees. They, they produce benzene that has been in virgin forest that has been measured. Um, the one thing which is, uh, is dangerous to me, and I'm an expert witness, Joe knows that, is with the guidelines. On one hand, you can, a guideline is a guideline. I said, hey, look, fellows, there are a couple of things you've got to take a look at. There isn't a guideline that is one paragraph long. That, yeah, it, it's always lengthy. And it gives you a general idea of how to go about a problem with it when you have a, a guideline. The only problem that I see is if you don't go by that guideline and it comes to a, a, a suit, a, a law case, the other lawyer will say, said, hey, Dr. Wild, you're a professional, you're aware of this, and um, you want to tell me that the guidelines that I'm that I'm showing you here right now, you show me, you tell me that they are complete nonsense and you didn't go by them. Well, I have a couple of answers for that. Uh, I will not bother you with those. Um, the other thing, which is which is also <laughs> it is wonderful, is that with the internet. I mean, the internet is a marvelous, marvelous tool. There is no doubt about it. I don't look at my Encyclopedia Britannica anymore because it goes faster on the Internet, one word, and there are a lot of pages in the Encyclopedia Britannica that I never read and I never ever will read if I were to live a thousand. But uh, people get, they, they get something from the Internet and they said, uh, I was in a PTA meeting and of course there's always a, a, a blonde, obese woman in the first row, and I gave him my interpretation of a certain issue, and it doesn't matter what it is. And she got up and said, Dr. Weil is lying. He has no idea what he is talking about. I was on the Internet, and here is what I got. Well, I asked her, and of course that didn't shut her up. I said, do you know who wrote that, what you were reading? No, 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 I don't know that, but it was on the Internet. I told her, I said, maybe the 12-year-old kid from your neighborhood, he put it there as, uh, as a fun piece for him. Uh, well, she, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that we, we, we didn't come to a solution on that story. <laughs> uh, uh, Dude, now that we've insulted blonde, obese women, uh, <laughs> now, that, here, the other thing is, with these new materials, yeah. I probably was one of the first ones, if not the first one, in the United States who took air samples when we applied um, rigid polyurethane foam uh, it, for various uh, uh, applications. Uh, that was developed by the Bayer Chemical Corporation, and I took air samples probably in 1972 or 73 when nobody knew what polyurethane foam was. <laughs> Uh, that has changed, obviously. But uh, you, you got to watch out with these new chemicals. If it's polyurethane or anything, if you have paint, green paint is not necessarily the same green paint that you used 10 years ago. 
So you got to read this. We are it's 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 we don't like to read the instructions and directions of use, but chemistry changes and that can change the toxicity and the problems and the hazards of a certain material. And I better shut up, otherwise we're going to go until uh, 1.30. Dieter, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And let's, let's, give, uh, let's give Queeving Connell, our guest today, forensic industrial hygienist. I'd like to give you the last option here to add anything or you know, ask us a question or just if we missed something, please add it. And if you want to let people know how they can get in touch with you, we'd appreciate it. Well, I would just like to uh, thank you very much for the opportunity and the invitation. I think it was uh, very gracious, and uh, thank you for, for that. I'd like to wish everyone a happy Jewish New Year. And uh, for my colleagues out there, uh, the industrial hygienists, I would impress upon you to go back to the basics, go back to the science, stick to the science. And, um, you know, we, we need to make remember that we are first and foremost scientists, and, and and keep that in mind. Well, thank you for that, and thanks for joining us. We appreciate it, and hopefully we'll get you back someday. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. All right, this Hi. is, Hi. before we go, I also want to thank um, our technical director, of course, Dr. Dietrich Weil. I want to thank Valerie Bender, who joined us from the world headquarters today up on uh, Central City on the mountain. Of course, our engineer, Austin, Stone Cold Novak, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We had a nice group online here today, and uh, downloads are, again, doing well. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon. By the way, we've got Dr. Jay Portnoy, MD, from the Kansas City Children's Mercy Hospital. He's also been, I believe he was, I know he was uh, on the Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I believe he may have been president, but I'll have to double-check on that. He will be with us next week, and we'll continue our discussion of indoor air quality, disaster restoration, and building science right here on IAQ Radio. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. Whatever what it is, who commenced it? I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.